Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of uh, posts and blogs on From Poverty to Power. Started off the week in traditional form with links I liked. There was a link here and a piece in The Economist which I thought was really interesting and I've tweeted and tried to get people interested in it without any success whatsoever. But The Economist went back and they looked at the COVID numbers around the world based on zero surveys. So randomized surveys, you know, representative surveys of the population in different countries just to see who had antibodies and, and who had COVID. And what this gives is a far more accurate picture of what's going on with COVID than testing, which where the amount of testing has increased over time and therefore you find more cases. When they did this, and the data is partial, what they found was really interesting. They found that there was a, a huge peak of infection sort of late April, early May, when over 5 million cases a day appeared to be um, coming through. And that that um, case, th that infection rate has really dropped to less than 1 million by when they took the numbers up to the end of September. So that's a completely different story from what we're hearing about the second wave. Um, and I just was really interested in that. I wanted to know what other people made of it, but it seems to have gone down like an enormous silent you know, um, uh, nothing. And I'm, I'm sorry about that. Anyway, there were various other links I liked, which I liked. Um, second was, um, second post of the week was a podcast. And this was with a really lovely guy called Richard English, who has been burrowing away within Oxfam for 25 years as a campaigner. And he recently put together a really great guide for uh, influencing for impact, which Oxfam, partly under my prodding, has published now. So you can see the internal training materials that Oxfam uses for its campaigners. And I just sat down with Richard um, uh, and interviewed him a bit about this. And um, just to give a flavor, uh, I asked him, yeah, the last big question, what is the single biggest message that this influencing guide has for the next generation of change makers, people who want to change the world. And Richard said, I would say, think about the context in which you are trying to make change happen. At what level can you operate at to make a real contribution as an activist who's passionate about making social change? Think it through and then do everything to bring people with you, to work with others in an empowering way, and then track it, learn as you go, adapt, be flexible, but be persistent. So I sum that up as a kind of bumper sticker, knowledge, self-knowledge, respect, relationships, think, adapt, persist. Yeah, that's a pretty good mantra for campaigners, I reckon. So do listen to Richard. I think he's a, he's a great bloke. He's, he's retiring from Oxfam soon and he'll be a big loss. Third post of the week was um, something which always get lots of clicks when you when you write this up, which is how do we deal with information overload? There is so much being published on aid, on development, on your whatever subset of that that you're interested in. And you could spend the whole day just browsing on Twitter and on social media. And how do you how do you make sure you don't miss the good stuff and how do you weed out the bad stuff and, and you know, make the most of your time? And so I've got a couple of uh, things I use. Uh, I use an RSS feed. And this for me is absolutely great. You, you sign up to 40 or 50 sources so that anything new from those sources in the last 24 hours appears the next time you look at your RSS feed. So that's like a personal newspaper. I use Twitter a lot for links. Um, I don't do you know, lots of threads and big conversations, but I think it's a really useful way to share li uh, links and why they're important. 
But then the main thing that prompted me to, to write this was there are various people out there who are doing regular roundups of what they've read. And some of them are absolutely brilliant. And so what you've got these synthesizers who, if you just sign up to them, you get a pre-digested set and, yeah, and, the, and you trust them and they're good. They will tell you what's worth reading and they will tell you what it says, which is fantastic. So I put those up and, I'll, and got a few more additions. But the, the, what was interesting was that the comments then veered off in an unexpected direction towards what tech platforms, what software people are using to manage the information overload. Um, and Heather Marquette made an impassioned plea for Rome Research, but other people mentioned OneTab, Pocket, Evernote. I'm never going to use this stuff. I'm too old and too rubbish at technology to really use this stuff. But I think for those of you who are, whose brains have not completely ossified, you might want to take a look at some of that. The fourth post of the week was the launch of a big new Oxfam uh, publication. So, so for the last three years, Oxfam has, uh, with, the, with Development Finance International, have produced something called the Commitment to Reduce Inequality Index, which is a really interesting exercise. So what you're saying is, okay, as well as just you know, looking at the numbers on inequality, how do we try and assess whether governments are committed to reducing inequality? And the, the, the starting point for this year's report was that the kinds of policies more equal countries tend to have in place in normal times make them more able to cope with shocks like COVID-19. Policies like sick pay, labour protections, public services like health and social protection. So the, 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 the commitment, the index is based on, on, on three things. Uh, which they think, uh, yeah, which the, the, their hypothesis is these are essential if a government is going to reduce the gap between rich and poor. Pro-poor public services on things like education, health, social protection, the progressivity of the tax system, and the extent to which labour rights and minimum wages are in place. Now, you could argue that there's things missing there, um, but I think it's a, it's a good starting point. Um, and what they do then is they produce an enormous league table. They look at who's, you know, particular stories in particular countries. I won't try and summarize it. There's a website with absolutely shed loads of, in, of information. You can go and look at what's going on with your own country, or you can look at countries you're interested in. You can just spend hours of happy play there, uh, wonk play, uh, and, and see what, what's happening with inequality and, this, and the politics of inequality around the world. Then the final piece of the week was um, a paper which was published uh, this week by the LSE Africa Centre. And it's called Observing COVID-19 in Africa Through a Public Authorities Lens. It was a paper I, I edited with Tom Kirk. Now, public authority is one of those academic terms which describes power. Um, it's basically saying, who do people defer to? Who do people trust? Who do people allow to organize their lives? Because it's not always the state. And especially in the kind of countries we're looking at in this project at the LSE, it's a whole bunch of other people. It's traditional chiefs, it's armed groups, it's faith leaders. And in some cases, the state is really pretty absent. So how have those different public authorities got involved, uh, been affected by the pandemic? And so what we did, rather than anything more sort of, you know, rigorous, what we did was contact a couple of dozen researchers who are working in northern Uganda, South Sudan, the, the Congo and Sierra Leone and say, give us some vignettes of how COVID has affected the people you're, around you. 
And what we did then was look at these vignettes and, and see if there were repeat patterns. And we identified five patterns which we thought seemed to be coming up in more than one place and quite often in lots of places. So the first one was shifts in the balance of power between state and non-state. And this can go in both directions. So in Uganda, there's been a massive centralization of power and the state saying only we can do food distribution and all the rest of it. In South Sudan, where the state is in a terrible mess, traditional chiefs have actually played a crucial role in getting information about protection and, and, and social distancing and all the rest out of it. Contests for control. When there's a big shock like that, that it tends to trigger fights. And some of the fights have been over who gets food, who distributes food, who gets COVID spending money, who gets the contracts. So a lot of people pitching in and, and try and fighting for control in this sudden, you know, um, uh, turbulence. There's a saying in Spanish, um, turbulent waters are always good for fishermen. And there's a lot of fishermen out there trying to grab benefits from what's going on with COVID. At a lower level, lockdowns as opportunities. So in the Congo, in the DRC, for example, police have found it harder to get bribes out of people because people aren't around as much. Um, they're staying at home, they're not moving around, less business going on. So officers have started to extract money by grabbing people who are not wearing masks, who are breaking curfew. And so there's a constant sort of search for new areas of graft. And, but there's also resistance. And that was this was an interesting one. So centralization and militarization of pandemic responses has has led to violence and human rights violations but also backlashes you know thing in in places in the congo the local population have just risen up and driven the police out and said look we've had enough of this um you can't just keep extorting us like this violently expelling um uh, police from some towns so certainly a level of spontaneous resistance what we're looking at in the emerging agency uh uh, emergent agency project which I've talked about before is whether there are more systematic um, forms of resistance and changes in uh, in civil society and other um, pol political forms as a result of these forms of resistance and then the final one which was kind of interesting was questioning official narratives that in several places people just don't believe what they're being told so in South Sudan COVID-19 is viewed as a foreign or a white person's illness brought by United Nations workers and confined to towns and cities uh, and it's traditional chiefs that seem to be able to counter these narrat narratives and persuade people to take precautions. In the DRC, the legacies of conflict and corruption around Ebola business and the relatively low incidence of COVID-19 means that people just don't believe that it's a problem and they don't trust whatever the government says. So this is a huge challenge for any kind of pandemic response. And it, um, you know, it echoes a bit with what's going on in other countries, but I think it's particularly acute in places where the state is weak, absent or predatory, which is what we're talking about in this uh, in this particular project. Have a great weekend. Talk to you next week. Stay safe. Stay well. Bye.